Great. Thanks uh, for reading, Johnny. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name's Chris Evans. I'm the assistant pastor here uh, at Redeemer, and uh, I'm going to lead us through um, this time in Revelation, uh, first, verse, first eight verses. Um, so let's pray for the Lord's help, shall we now? Father, we thank you so much for these words. Uh, we've just read, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written because the time is near. Lord, we pray that, that by the work of your Spirit, we would experience that same blessing this morning, that you would help us to hear these words and help us to take these words to heart, and so to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, I wonder how, um, how often have you needed uh, kind of a voice from outside uh, your everyday to, to speak into your situation. Whether we realize it or not, it's something that happens pr- pretty often, al- almost every day. Um, maybe a, a doctor's appointment that brings some clarity. Uh, maybe uh, a friend uh, telling you it, it's okay, helping you to, to think something through that you're going through. Sometimes we need people to, to speak in to a very kind of personal situation, don't we? Um, maybe a, a strained marriage. Uh, maybe uh, we might have convinced ourselves uh, that, that we're absolutely worthless. And it, and it takes someone else to come alongside you and say, no, you are loved. Because we've kind of gone so far down that, that spiral. Sometimes it might be quite a formal situation. Maybe uh, you've had a, a work consultation, and it takes someone more experienced uh, with a different skill set to, to kind of speak into your situation and give you some tips. Sometimes it might just be reading a book written by someone who's going through something similar to what you're going through, and as they express things, it helps you understand uh, why you're feeling what you're feeling. When other people speak into our situations, we often get a fresh perspective, don't we, that that we need often. Sometimes that it's in really big ways, sometimes just uh, in little ways. But as we begin our time in Revelation, let me just give a couple of minutes uh, to see what, what is the situation that John is speaking into. Because he's writing this letter um, with a voice from, from outside into uh, what these churches are, are going through. Um, just like like us today, uh, we're kind of used to seeing uh, a world filled with different uh, agendas, aren't we? Social agendas affirmed in schools or shops or, or, or the media, or, or different countries with different political agendas. Well, well here, John is writing in the context of the, the agenda of the glory of Rome, which is widespread. And Christians could easily feel trapped by their own spiral of thinking. Is, does the church have any future under this rule? Uh, over time, in the Roman rule, there, there developed this imperial cult, which meant that you worshipped the, the leader, the, the, the Roman Caesar. Uh, and this kind of came over time. Different emperors first referred to themselves as son of God, then savior of the world, then the Lord, until you get to Emperor Caligula, who proclaimed himself God himself. And by the time this is being written, you've got temples around the Roman Empire to worship the Roman emperor. So if you're a Christian, confessing Jesus as Lord 
it wasn't just a, a religious thing for yourself, but it was a political act. It, it could be treason. But as well as a political thing, it could also be commercial suicide for you. Because unlike today, in, in the place that John is writing, uh, there wasn't so much of a kind of sacred and secular divide. The imperial uh, worship was, was part of everyday commercial life through what they called kind of trade guilds, a bit like markets. So a guild would be like a group of people who'd work together to organize buying and selling things in the area. So in Winchester, uh, we used to meet in the guild hall. So way back when, at some point, that was probably a place where, where you went to buy and, buy and sell goods. But to be involved in one of the guilds meant strings attached. It meant being involved in the imperial cult. If, if you wanted to, to sell wool or, or do metalwork or, or, or wood, it, it meant being involved with worship of the emperor. So following Jesus, well, it could get you ostracized. It could maybe get you thrown in prison, maybe even killed. But it could also mean that you had a family who were hungry. It could mean that your friends wondered why you, were, you weren't going down to the, to the guild to, to do your trade. A lot of pressure, tongues wagging. And against 600 years of Roman Empire and daily pressure like that, the church could feel pretty weak, couldn't it? And Christians are mostly going in two places. Those who are sticking it out, who are faithful to Jesus, are having a hard time. And those who are finding it too much are drifting into compromise. So, so, so what if I put a foot in both camps, if I worship the emperor as well as Jesus? Does the church have a future? I guess we can ask that question too. We can feel some of the pull of that in, in, in different ways, the pull uh, either of, of pressure uh, or of compromise. And into this, John speaks a voice from outside, and he writes this book, Revelation. But it's not the voice that we might be expecting, because it's a book filled with, well, dragons, beasts, angels, creatures, singing, bowls, seals, plagues, serpents, devils, prostitutes, feasts, a wedding, prayers, incense. It's like a sensory overload. And, and we're not, we're not going to be uh, doing all of that in, in one go. But, but it's a big book. And it's a big book because Rome was big. And it, it needed to be big. But we can often feel kind of quite intimidated, I think, coming to Revelation because of that. And that's because, I think, has anyone, has anyone not read Harry Potter in here? Put, put your hand up. Anyone? Okay. So if I were to hand you the seventh Harry Potter book... Uh, you would find it really confusing. Um, you'd come across things, people, and places that you have no context for. What is a horcrux? What is a pensive? What is a patronus? What, what is going on? But if, if you have read it, I could hand this to you, and you, you wouldn't blink because you, you'd understand these things, these pictures, these, these contexts. And so much of Revelation is big because it comes from a big story all through the Old Testament. And that is that the palette that God has already given his people that John is using. He's not making up something new. And this is written, did you see verse 1? To servants, not 
scholars. Sometimes we think, oh, this is going to take all my brain power to, to figure this book out. But it's written to servants, normal Christians wanting uh, to follow Jesus. So I wonder whether we might come a bit confused, a bit scared, a bit bewildered to Revelation. But John says this remarkable thing in verse 3. If we read this book, we will be blessed. And as we look through these eight verses this morning, I'm going to try and give us three windows on what that blessing is. And hopefully that will, that will kind of take some of the, 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 the possible kind of confusion that we, we might be thinking about. What, what, how are we going to get into this book? So three things to set us up for Revelation. Firstly, Jesus is speaking. We need to hear his voice. Jesus is speaking. We need to hear his voice. If chapters 20, all 22 chapters are, are kind of like a bit of a map, these first three verses give us a little bit of a key into uh, understanding that, that map. Um, I wonder if you, people still get letters in the post, don't they? I get letters in the post. Um, some letters that you get have got kind of the sender address on, on, on the back. And it's quite helpful uh, because then you know whether you want to open it or whether you can just chuck it in the recycling. Um, this one happens to be from HMRC, so probably not one to chuck in the recycling. Um, but it also helps you know, oh, should I, should I read this? What kind of attitude should I read this letter with? Is it one to take seriously? And here, we're told who the sender is. We're told straight off, it's from Jesus. It is Jesus speaking, and so we should, we should listen up straight away. Verse 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, John's sender address isn't just, doesn't just turn the envelope and it just says, from Jesus. It's a little bit more rich than that, isn't it, here? There's, there's a bit of a chain God the Father to Jesus, it says which God gave him, who sends it to his servants, the church, by sending an angel to John, the writer, who writes it down. It's, it's not your kind of normal address. Our office address is Redeemer Winchester 12, Southgate Street, SO23, so-and-so. That would be a, a, pretty, well, it's a pretty boring sender's address, isn't it? But this is the voice of Jesus himself. The word of God, the testimony of of Jesus. So Revelation is Jesus is speaking, but, but who's it to? Well, verse 1, we see it's his servants. And we're told in verse 4, he has seven churches in Asia in mind, and you get them listed in verse 11. These are real places. On a, we could find them on a map uh, with real issues going on. We'll see those in the, in the coming weeks. And Jesus has got real words for them. But each church wasn't just to kind of Listen out for their little bit and then, and then zone out for the rest of it. They were to hear the whole thing. And the word seven, it, it, it is a number, seven churches, but it's also throughout the Old Testament, part of that palette, it's a, a symbol for, for fullness, completeness. Jesus' words are for the complete church, Christians across time and space. And that includes us. So in that chain of verse 1, it goes God to Jesus, to angel, to John, to servants, to the whole church. Jesus is speaking to his church. 
And Jesus is speaking to his church, but what about? Well, he's speaking about himself. That word, revelation, that we get at the beginning, is the same as the words apocalypse. Um, I wonder if you kind of think about that word, tends to think explosion or the end of the world or, or something like that, but it literally means an unveiling, an unveiling of something. Not a, not a covering up, not, not something to, to hide or to make us feel confused, which might be how we sometimes think about revelation, but an unveiling. It's supposed to shine light in the dark. Um, the writer Eugene Peterson um, puts it like this. He says, the word means uncover. Imagine a pot of stew on a stove. A person enters the house and becomes aware of a, a rich aroma coming from the kitchen. The smells are inviting. He guesses at some of the ingredients. He asks others in the house what is in the pot and gets different opinions. The cook doesn't seem to be anywhere around. Finally, everyone troops into the kitchen. One of the company takes the lid off the pot. They all crowd close and peer into it, uncover the stew with all its ingredients, is exposed to the eye. Apocalypse. What was guessed at is now known in detail and becomes food for a hearty meal. John wants to unveil the Lord Jesus and his work for us so we have food for a hearty meal. And that is what is being unveiled, the Lord Jesus himself and what he is doing in the world. Isn't that precious? Isn't a clearer view of the Lord Jesus and what he's doing, what they need, what we need most of all? I don't know if you've ever seen, um, in the kind of impressionist painting time, there was a, a, a school called Pointillism, where they painted with little, little dots. Um, and it's kind of lots and lots of small dots up close. And, and if you're up close, it kind of, it looks a bit messy. You've just got lots of dots and you can't really see the whole. But as you step back, this, this kind of amazing picture comes uh, into place, this unveiling of uh, a wonderful scene. John is a little bit like that, unveiling Jesus and his work for us. So through Revelation, Jesus is speaking to his church about himself and his work. But why is he writing? Verse 3 is amazing. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written, because the time is near. Revelation is written to bless. And that can give us real confidence, can't it? The next few months as we go through Revelation, this is written to bless the church, to bless us. Please be, be praying that that would be our experience as a church. But how does that blessing come in verse 3? It comes through hearing his voice and taking it to heart. John says the posture of our hearts matters as Jesus speaks. We need to hear his voice above all others, but we can only do that if we're willing to listen. We began by thinking we, we need this voice to speak from outside of us, but, but sometimes we don't realize we need it. Sometimes we put up walls, don't we? We won't let anything else in, anything speak through. There's so many voices we could be listening to, and, and it's easier to shut them out. But here we have a voice that promises blessing from the Lord Jesus himself. So how are we feeling? Are we feeling weary or, or, or sad or isolated? Are we feeling angry with the Lord? Are we grieving? 
Are we in danger of compromising? All of those things were true of the churches that John was writing to. But Jesus wants to speak words of blessing to them and words of blessing to us. The question is, will we listen to him? Will we pull our defenses down? Will we take these words to heart? We need to hear his voice, the voice of the Almighty. Jesus is speaking. Well, secondly, the next blessing that we see is that Jesus is ruling. We are to look past all earthly noise. There was a bit of graffiti found um, in the city of Ephesus, which is one of the places where one of the churches is is, uh, addressed in this letter. And the graffiti says, Rome, your power will never end. Rome, your power will never end. And I don't know whether that was um, someone writing out of despair. Oh, your power will never end. This is, this is, this is agony. Or, or the kind of triumphant. Oh, yes, we belong to Rome. Rome's power will, will never end. But, but it, it's kind of, it could be both, couldn't it? You can imagine different people looking at it and responding in different ways. And that kind of reminds us of the, the noise that is going on in John's life and in the church's lives as they look on earthly leaders, as they look on the glory of Rome, these symbols of power, it seems unconquerable, inescapable. They read those words, Rome, your power will never end. And it feels true. And the power that we see around us might not be a a Roman power, but nonetheless, we can see a lot of earthly noise, can't we? A lot of things that we might put in place of Rome... I don't know what that might be for you, whether it's something to do that we see flashed on the media, whether it's certain social uh, agendas, but there are certainly powers that feel like they, they just go on forever. And that's why what is unveiled about Jesus in verses four to eight are such a, a blessing. Because John greets them with this longing that they know God's grace and his peace. But look at how he describes the source of grace and peace. It's very different. We get grace and peace in in lots of letters, but here he puts front and center a picture of the triune God's eternal reign over all things. Let me read from verse four. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, referring to the Father, and from the seven spirits. Remember, seven, uh, complete fullness. Some translations say the, the sevenfold spirit before his throne. He's talking about the Holy Spirit there. Then he moves to the Son, and from Jesus Christ, who's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. This source of grace and peace to them, and grace and peace to us, is the triune God who rules through his king, Jesus. Remember that graffiti? Rome, your power will never end. That earthly noise that goes on forever. What a blessing to hear these words before you hear the rest of the letter, that that is who these words are coming from. What a description of God. Three things that that we see. Firstly, his rule is one that will never end because he will never end. Him who is, who was, and is to come. God is outside of time, none before him and none after him. Verse eight, he's called the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Maybe Rome's been in power for six years hundred years but that's not a speck on eternity and as we look back time proved too much didn't it for the roman empire and it will prove too much for whatever agenda whatever power might be filling our lives with noise as well 
Secondly, God's rule is a rule that is unparalleled in power because he is unparalleled in power. Verse six, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. He's described in verse eight as almighty. The might of all of that earthly noise might sound deafening to them. It might feel threatening to us, but muscles will waste away, swords will go blunt and Human influence will wane as competition comes. But God has no rival to his power. He is not dependent on anything apart from himself. He does not tire or grow weary. He doesn't need financing. He doesn't need resources like oil or or petrol or weapons. No, his power is unparalleled. And we also see that he His king is the one to whom all others will have to answer. Verse 5, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. To all other kings, for they are like children playing dress up, pretenders to the throne. An eternal rule, a powerful rule, and a rule to whom all others will have to submit. Um, King James of of the sixth of, of Scotland was someone who was notoriously rude during church worship services. Um, It said that he kind of sit in the gallery while the minister preached and instead of kind of listening well like everyone here is is doing, he'd be kind of chatting away quite quite loudly. And uh, on one occasion, the minister, Robert Bruce, paused. He kind of waited for for a bit of silence and waited for King James to stop. And then he, he carried on. But as he carried on, so did King James starts chatting again. And so stops a second time. Eventually, so does the king. And then the minister resumes. And as he starts preaching again, so the noise picks up again. And the third time it happened, Robert Bruce stopped, waited for silence, and addressed the king. And he said these words. It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah, that's Jesus himself, is now roaring in the voice of his gospel and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. Quite a thing to say, isn't it? Jesus rules above all earthly kings. But but how? How how can he rule above them all? Well, did you see nestled in verse five? Because only his rule can't be finished by his death. He is the firstborn from the dead, supreme over death because he has risen again. Jesus is ruling. So we can look past all earthly noise to an eternal, all-powerful rule which not even death can touch. That is wonderful news for us, isn't it? But, but we need to pause. Why is it good news? Because those three things on their own could be a little bit terrifying. That there is someone whose rule will never end, who is unparalleled in power, and who is above all kings. But we need to see what is that king like. Verse 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. His rule is a loving rule. It brings freedom from sin and judgment 
by his death on the cross and freedom for something, for service to God, being a kingdom and priests. If we need a voice from outside of us today, this is an amazing couple of verses to memorize for the week ahead about what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Rome, your power will never end. That's the noise that we hear every day. But if we look past and hear the voice of Jesus, we can hear a sweeter song here, can't we? So it is a hard thing to do because the noise around us is often so overwhelming. If we hear those words of Jesus and take them to heart, we do have an anchor which can withstand any storm, even death itself. But it is hard to tune our ears to hear that. But we can listen to that voice and sing the echoes of that sweeter song with remarkable confidence because of who Jesus is. There's a, um, a scene in the film Casablanca, I don't know if any of you have, have seen it, where it's sort of set in World War II, the sort of occupation and resistance. It's in North Africa in this, this cafe. And um, it, there, the, there's sort of resistance fighters going on, uh, and yet the city is occupied by uh, the Nazis. And there's this scene where the Germans ask the band to play the German national anthem, say, oh, and, and the music starts up. And, uh, and, and it, so they, start, they start singing. But there's a few people in that cafe who are members of the resistance. And uh, they go over to some musicians over here, and, they, and uh, the, the leader, he says, play La Marseillaise, which is the, the French national anthem, which is a sort of theme of, of fighting back. And, and they strike up. And you've got this kind of battle of two songs going on. And, and you've got the German soldiers. It flicks back to them. And, and they say, no, sing louder, sing louder. And then uh, gradually people start standing up in the room singing La Marseillaise. And, and you're wondering which, one is, which one's going to be louder. Which, who's going to triumph in the end? Uh, and, and eventually the, the German national anthem is, is drowned out. And they, they sit down in frustration. And it's very very inspiring. Do go and have a look it up. But the thing about this song, as inspiring as it is, it's interesting. This film was made, I think, in 1942. It was before the end of the World War. And we, we look back on it, and we, we think, oh, that's so inspirational, because we know how the story ended. But at that point, you watched that film, you didn't know that that, that was going to be the end. Their song is aspirational at, at, at best. But what is our song built on? Our song is built on the hope that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. We can look past all the noise of all earthly rule with confidence that is unshakable. Jesus is ruling, so look past all earthly noise. And finally, one more blessing that Jesus wants us to hear more briefly. Jesus is coming. Don't wait to make your choice. Throughout these verses, uh, John has hinted at something coming in the future, which is kind of driving his writing. Verse 1, he says, what must take place soon. Verse 3, blessed are those who hear it, take it to heart what is written, because the time is near. And then we get it spelled out in verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen.
Jesus is coming means, in verse 7, that judgment is coming. This ruling king will return. Everyone will see and acknowledge him. But he will also bring judgment for every evil deeds and every sin. And what we see here is that that will bring mourning and agony for those who are not part of Jesus' kingdom. But John is saying this as something to bless his readers. How is being told of this a blessing? It sounds quite terrifying, doesn't it? I think Jesus tells us of this future coming judgment to make a difference to life now, to bring blessing now and then, if we will hear it and take it to heart. Two ways that this is a blessing. Firstly, it brings the blessing of vindication. I wonder if you like a courtroom thriller. I love watching a, a kind of legal drama or a, or a courtroom thriller. Um, they're really popular, aren't they, today? Um, we, we kind of, I don't know why they have this deep appeal, but I guess we love to see justice done. We love uh, kind of, kind of, we like the procedure of seeing all the case put together, but ultimately it's the kind of, we want to see justice done. And if the film ends and the guilty party has been acquitted because of some kind of lack of evidence or some testimony being changed or something, we find it so unsatisfactory, don't you? You get to the end, you're like, oh, that film was rubbish, even if that's what really happened in real life. Because we, we kind of cry along with the victims. We followed these characters all the way through, and we just long to get justice. And that turmoil as we wait for the jury to come out and announce their decision, it, it can be exhausting. What we see here is that Jesus says that he's coming and that he will judge justly. This tells us we don't have that roller coaster ride that every courtroom drama has, that every human court goes through. We look forward to knowing that Jesus gets it right every time, that no evil or sin will go unseen or unpunished. And for those who've been sinned against, that is a huge blessing, isn't it? Maybe someone has done great evil to, to you or someone you know. Jesus sees that. Jesus will not let that slip. There will be no mistrial. There is a blessing of vindication in knowing that Jesus is coming. But for those who've sinned, that is also a terrifying thought. And for many of us, that, that can be a terrifying thought too because we know our hearts. And that is the second blessing that Jesus is coming, the blessing of a call to allegiance. Jesus is, is calling everyone to, to know this is what's happening. Examine your heart. Where is your allegiance? How are you going to deal with your sins against the Lord Most High? Jesus is warning what will come before it does because he knows that someone will have to pay for our sins. Justice will have to be done. It can be you, but it needn't be because Jesus gives us an alternative offer in these verses. Did you see verse 5? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus said we're blessed if we hear his words and take his words to heart. Will we take to heart the fact that Jesus is coming? Will we make our choice? Have we made it? Many in this room have. 
but like a, a good voice from outside, it's, it's good to ask, do we know the comfort that comes from knowing his blood has been shed for us, that all our sins have been paid for, that we are safe, freed from a future of fear, freed from mourning and wailing that we see there in verse 7, and given a future of hope. That is the future that Jesus longs for each of us in this room. That is the blessing he wants you to hear from this verse. Jesus is coming. Don't wait to make your choice. Well, Jesus is speaking to the church about himself to bring blessing. A blessing that he is ruling and a blessing that he is coming. And so will we hear those words? Will we take those words to heart? Will we know that great blessing? A moment to reflect and then I'll pray exactly that we would know that great joy. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for these words, these words which offer us blessing. Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear the voice of Jesus, that you would encourage us to see the rule of Jesus, and that you would help us respond to know that Jesus is coming and work in our hearts to turn to him or to know the security that we already have in him and to know the great confidence that comes knowing the blessing of vindication that one day all things will be put right by him. We thank you that he is our king and that he is a king who loves us, who has freed us and who is restoring us and has made us a kingdom of priests to you. What a privilege that is, Father. Please help us to delight in that and delight in him more. In Jesus' name, amen.